Welcome, everybody. Today, it gives me really great pleasure to meet up with an old friend from the USA to talk about life over there in the US. Bevan has been in my life for 20 years, I guess, or more. We together set up the master's programs in herbal medicine in Maryland in what was Thai Sophia Institute, and now the Maryland Institute for integrative health. Bevan is carrying the torch there. I moved on some time ago, but uh, I remember some of the real interesting challenges and opportunities that, that exist for herbal practice in the US. And I'm hoping that as we chat a, a bit today, some of this will come out. So Bevan, I know that uh, you've really committed your life in a big way to herbal medicine. And, uh, you know, we always start with the same thing. Why? What led you to this path? What is, what's your passions? Where did you come into herbs? And how did you progress through all this? It's it's always really interesting to think of this question because, uh, you know, I, I didn't really realize it until my mother reminded me one day of when I was a child, I used to have these dreams all the time about uh, about going out in the woods and finding plants and and. And there were also people involved sometimes, but I would do this. And then we lived in the forest in New Hampshire. And so I would go out into the forest to find these plants afterwards. I don't really know if I ever found those plants, but I found plants and I didn't know what they were. Uh, but, you know, there's a strong connection with plants. And ever since I was young and in my teen years where everyone was experimenting with plants in different ways, I remember very clearly thinking, you know, if if some of these plants can do this to our bodies and, you know, some of the, I, I didn't know a lot. I was, you know, as a teenager, I didn't know a lot about how brains worked or anything, but I just knew is you took this plant into your body and it changed the way you experience the world around you. And I thought, well, okay, so plants and humans can clearly communicate in some way um, on some kind of biochemical level. And if they can do that, what are the other possibilities? and thinking about all the different ways that maybe they can change our bodies. Um, so fast forward to me being a, later in, in my teen years and learning about herbalism, you know, devouring every book, which there weren't that many books, you know. I, I remember I'd had like Penelope Odie's herb book and I had, you know, it was just like whatever books I could get my hands on and I had um, – uh, David Hoffman's book and things like that. So, you know, reading all of that. And then I went to Southeast Asia um, in my late teen years for when I was like 18, 19 and went as remote as I could go um, to small villages and, and all of these places. And what I didn't expect to happen was that people felt people would see a, a, a white person walking around and assume they were either a doctor or a missionary and they would bring sick people. And at first I was just like, oh no, I'm so sorry. Like I, I have nothing to do with this. I'm, you know, but I was a precocious teenager and I did know a little bit about herbs and I did feel badly for people. Um, and so, you know, there were very, there's very alive and thriving herbal medicine communities in places all over the world. But, um, but then there's always this, this reverence for pharmaceutical Western medicine that comes in, in certain places and distrust, uh, depends on where you're at. But I got to see herbal medicines over the course of a couple of years do things that were profound and, um, in particularly in infectious disease situations and, and in, in situations where, of course, you would just go to the hospital, like they, these people all should have gone to the hospital, like I, I, all of these situations, but there's no hospital. So then you do what you, you best with what you have. So that led me to getting a master's in infectious disease, always with the perspective of kind of a um, public health epidemiology understanding. And that's not really my wheelhouse necessarily as an herbalist, but it's more about just about the sheer... Um, power of of herbal medicines that that is is very much there and so tenacious and and tactile in our in our world. So I you know and I would say if anything's changed, it's been that I've become much more interested in the herb herbalists than the herbs. I'm still very interested in the herbs and they play a great role, particularly in my personal life um, as a mother and um, as an individual. But I've been really interested in the profession, the viability of the profession of herbal medicine 
for people and for herbalists. And that's been a lot of my focus in, uh, in my more recent years. And you've been really uh, in a key position with the American Herbalist Guild. So you're, you've really put your uh, put that into action, that interest. Yes. So I guess you're the person to ask about Herbalist US. Yeah, I mean, where you know, it's hard to summarize Herbalist in the US because Herbalist in the US go anything from, you know, it, it's like if you look at the, the political spectrum of the right to the left, you'll find Herbalist kind of huddled in both corners. Um the the dynamics are fascinating in the in um in the United States. So it's very hard to generalize, you know, and of course the US is a is a massive multinational multi-ethnic um country. So we have all sorts of languages and ethnicities and belief practices and intact um, practices of herbal medicine from all over the place. But, you know, if we're going to talk about the flavor of herbalism that you and I are part of, um, which is generally, you know, English, often often English speaking, using, you know, kind of a little bit of a conglomeration of philosophies, European, especially in the United States, there's a lot of um, uh, the, you know, the U.S. always called a melting pot has a lot of that. So the herbal medicine that came that resulted from uh, the slavery of many, many people kind of trickled up into our, our herbalism, the indigenous people um, also, you know, that's part of it. The Thompson, the eclectics and Thompsonians and physiomedicalists and then the European tradition. So we've got this like big mishmash. Um, and so it's hard to, you know, to define us, but I would say, as a group, particularly like the membership of the American Herbalist Guild, we could we could define us as, which is also fairly diverse. Um, you know, we're, we are a group of people who who live a little bit on the fringe, but also are very mainstream. I mean, you know, that we're a lot of us, most of us, adopt evidence informed practices um, as well that are heavily rooted in tradition because you can't really pull them out. Um, and we also, um, you know, health justice is a huge piece in this too. Like the inequalities in healthcare, um, the the accessibility issues. Um, you know, the United States. I'm sure you've heard of our, of our less than perfect medical system, and so herbal medicine, herbal medicine plays you know a number of different roles in there. Um, so, yeah, so, you know, it's a very interesting, it can be everything from kind of like homegrown farmer's market stuff to ultra high-end boutique herbalism and different types of models of practice and um, philosophies as well. And, but I would say, you know, we're, we're, we're definitely a bunch of outspoken rebels um, <laughs> that uh, seems to come up. We're, we're, not, uh, we're not the most passive crowd of, uh, of people. And I think that's because we have a lot to say. You know, herbalism is misunderstood and, um, and it continues to be. I mean, I, I always think it's fascinating that in my years of being alive, and I'm sure you'd find the same thing, it's misunderstood, but, in t it, but the ways that it's misunderstood keep changing. It just still keeps being misunderstood in so many ways. But we get, you know, maybe we get a little bit closer and, uh, and how we understand it and, and what we do. So. Well, I remember when we were starting up with our master's program, you know, we had the lawyers in because the institution wanted to be sure that it wasn't going to get itself thrown into corporate right. jail. So, you know, there's all sorts of stuff about what, as herbalists in Maryland, we were able to do to say we couldn't prescribe, we couldn't diagnose, right. we couldn't do this, that or the other. Uh, so we had to, I think it was, I think Jim Turner was his name, the lawyer said, uh, what the good thing is, is that what you think between your ears and behind your eyes is not anyone else's business. Mm. So you can do a full consultation uh, in every way and draw your own conclusions. But at the end of the day, you're actually sending your clients out and they're not patients, your clients out as a nutritional service. Mm. I mean, that was what we were told then. And I guess, and I know it varies from state to state as to what you can get away with, what you're legally able to do, how you're licensed. Um, so there must be a huge miscellany of legal and regulatory. 
uh, frameworks out yeah, there. Yeah. So, well, you know, they, and those have changed. It's interesting when I heard you just say that because um, nutritional services is one of the biggest things we have to avoid because the nutritionists have become more organized and licensed. And so we have to be really careful. That's that's one of those. Um so we, you know, herbalism is not licensed in the United States. It's also, it's also not, it's not like, uh, it's not criminalized either. So it's a lot like things like yoga therapy, like coaching and health coaching. Uh, but we are recommending specific things uh, for people. So it gets a little bit more complicated, you know, yoga therapists and health coaches aren't giving people substances to take. And uh, so, so we are... Um, we one of the big things with MUIH is that right we don't diagnose treat or prescribe those are still there we can recommend we can accept we can assess and so on but we don't treat disease and i think that this does actually work uh, I remember wrapping my head around it initially and then actually kind of wholeheartedly adopting it in that you know let's say somebody comes in and they have um they have cancer uh, you know, just the one that the lawyers didn't want us to work with. I remember it was nobody, nobody with cancer. Um, uh, you know, in the end, a lot of what you do as an herbalist is not actually cancer treatment. It's, you know, I want this person to have optimal sleep. I want their nervous system to be um, functioning more effectively. I want their immune system to be functioning more optimally. I want their digestion to be um, calm. I want all those things. And that's actually what we're doing a lot of the time. It's not necessarily that we're giving them a, a cancer treatment because um, they're often taking that. So so a lot of it became, you know, what are we trying to optimize or support um, in the body? And, uh, and so that's kind of the language that we use a little bit more, which I think is actually easier for people to understand too. And it gives them a lot more metrics by which to assess their progress. Because I think if you come in and you say, I'm treating cancer, and then they say, well, my tumor is still the same size. Um, it didn't work. But if they say, oh, gosh, yeah, you know, I'm sleeping a little bit better and, and I'm able to eat more, so I have more strength and the the things aren't making me as nauseous, I have more energy, you know, those are those are really critical things. So, so that's kind of the shift, I think, that we have made towards a little bit more um, looking for optimal wellness, which I think herbalism is great at. And then, the, of course, the secret behind all of that is a lot of those things that we're doing are the same things that we might be doing if we were treating cancer. Um, a lot of those same herbs that we're using for immune support might have more, you know, targeted effects. Like so, um, but we don't really need to mention those because that's not the reason why we're doing it. So. Um, so yeah, it's continued to be kind of an interesting area, you know, with with cannabis becoming legal in the U.S. and so prolific, that's also changed what we do, you know, it's in a way because we have to be a little bit more careful around um, terms that are going to get us mixed up in that because it gets really messy when we start getting, when people think like, you know, the dis dispensaries are cannabis places now. Um and so we have to be careful of that. But, um, but you know, the, the, the FCC and a number of the governmental organizations here are, are uh, and rightfully so, are extremely aggressive around countering um, misinformation, particularly since COVID started. Um, and so herbalism does get snagged up in that quite a bit um, because of, of you know, the, the, unfortunately, the the non-scrupulous herbal companies have not vanished uh, ever in my time with herbalism. And so, you know, they ruin the party for the rest of us at times, but, uh, but, you know, we managed. So, as always was. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if that will ever no, change. I, I, <laughs> no, it's just, uh, we're always going to be besieged by that. Uh, uh, and particularly I think in the U S because there is a more wild west, uh, culture out mm -hmm. there. Uh, and you know, to talk about cannabis to a UK Irish audience would uh, is almost like another world. Right. Because of course, we are well away, far away from that. Uh, but I remember being liberated by that conversation we had mm. back in the day in Thai Sophia about not diagnosing and not prescribing because, of course, it cuts out a lot of the confusion. Right. You right. know, herbs actually do th different things yeah. than treat diseases, and to actually not be allowed to treat diseases is actually. Very liberating, it is. Uh, as you as you were saying, yeah. 
So um, to, to, we, we were at one end of the country in Maryland. Can you sort of uh, sum up roughly how many colleges there are out there producing graduates at the moment? I remember for a while we were sort of r running the show for a while in terms of graduates. Right. Well, you know, there, there's there's the accredited and there's the non-accredited herbal programs that are out there. Um, and I would say that the 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 quality of the programs um, isn't it doesn't doesn't depend on accreditation. Um, the the scope of the program or the depth of the program may and, and often does. So you know, as a as a graduate school, MUIH is and students are learning a huge amount of critical thinking, evidence-informed herbal medicine, academic writing, research interpretation, things like that. Those are those are huge. Um, there's a huge emphasis on all of those pieces, uh, information literacy in general. Um, but of course, all of the herbal medicine stuff as well. But uh, you know, one of the great things about herbalism is is it's there's a million and one herb programs depending on what people want. You know, you don't want to go to get a master's of science in clinical herbal medicine. If you just want to work with herbs with your family and uh, help with things that come up and there's beautiful programs. So as far as accredited uh, degree programs, master's programs in herbalism, there's three in the United States now. Um, and uh, two of them are relatively new. So the MUIH is, Kind of the one that has the on the ground, um, although we're all virtual now, but the very in-depth hands-on clinical uh, training. So you, you spend a long time doing your um, clinical intensives and working with your clients and working with supervisors. And, you know, it's it's remarkable how much we've replicated things in the early days. I mean, there's certain things that have fallen off, of course, and there's new things that have come in. But you would absolutely recognize, Simon, so many of the things that we're doing still that were dreamed up, um, you know, ages ago and done sitting out in the garden at MUH, but we're doing them online. Um, which I'm a huge fan of, you know, if you, if you had told me and told all of us, you know, we'd be moving to this online thing, I would be like, this is awful. But the accessibility, the integration into life, the, um, the equity of an online platform versus who's the loudest, fastest, and, uh, most charming in the classroom. It's, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's phenomenal. Um, is there a loss? Sure. But uh, but still, the quality of the herb programs all over the country, I feel like, has just increased dramatically. And the production quality of some of the online educational things is also, you know, really superior and, and incredible. So I'm, I'm, in, I'm inspired by my colleagues all the time with what they're doing for education. And I love how we all work together. I, I don't feel like, you know, it's a it's a question of of the accredited degree programs producing better herbalists. It's just the different different types of herbalists that come out of those programs. Yes, I remember the AHC meetings were a bit of a, a bit of a uh, bit of a party yes. in many ways. I mean, there's there's a real uh, community, isn't there? Even across all those many states, is there much? Um, Overlapped. I remember that in the early days, we, you know, the other big education institutions were the naturopathic colleges, yeah. and I'm just wondering: is there much overlap now? Is there sort of confusion, perhaps, in people's minds as to who is a herbalist and who is a naturopath? Do they? Is is there in Australia, for example, you know, where I know Kerry so well, uh, most herbalists are naturopaths. Right. Um, right. Yeah, you know, it's really hard to speak to this topic because the naturopathic education varies very widely on what they learn about herbalism. And um, but, you know, naturopaths in the United States are primary care provider providers now. So, um <laughs> You know, I almost wanted to say no comment to your to your question about naturopathy because it's a tricky one. You know, yeah. in my opinion, I think that when naturopaths went for um, primary care provider, they lost a lot of the naturopathy because they had to. I mean, if they're going to learn all the medicine and do all that, how they can't have as much time, and then they 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 learn so many different types of modalities. Um, so really, in the end, the 
and there are exceptions to this. They, you know, there are some naturopathic colleges where they're learning quite a bit of botanical medicine, and there's many naturopaths that take that and go deeper into herbal medicine. Um, but for the most part, the the herbal medicine pieces can be um, smaller. So I think it just depends on whether you want to be um, kind of a jack of all trades, master of none, or you want to really go in deep into something. Uh, and so naturopathy, the the colleges, naturopathic colleges in the United States have had a lot of reduced enrollment in over time. I mean, it is a very expensive, very long process. Um, and uh, so it's, I think, you know, all of a sudden you start looking at, do I want to become an MD or an ND or, an, you know, a nurse practitioner or um, things like that? There's a lot of options to become primary care and uh, people are assessing what makes the most sense. So, so it's, a, it's tricky right now, I think. But, it, you know, as you said, something like the HG is a big party. We have a lot of naturopaths that are phenomenal herbalists in it, uh, an incredible community, many of whom are naturopaths. And, uh, um, and so, but, but I feel like the younger generations, it's a little bit different. So I, I'd love to be proven wrong. And if any of your listeners are, you know, us based naturopaths and you want to get in touch and share a little bit of your perspective, I'd love to hear about that because that may not be as informed as I could be. It's very interesting because, of course, the, we, we've all skirted with the idea of getting, you know, regular status of one sort or another. We were uh, fairly down the road of getting a statutory regulation in the UK, for example, <laughs> didn't come to anything. But I always wondered myself as to what you lose when you get sort of official status. The same with naturopaths in Australia as well, I think. Uh, you know, there's a tendency, as you say, to become, you have to play the system. You have to, you know, tick various boxes and so on to stay in practice. So there's, yeah. a, there's an attraction in being wild and out in the woods a bit, isn't it? Well, yeah, you know, we, I think that, that you'd find that the that the majority of herbalists, particularly, I mean, the, the American Herbalist Guild is against uh, any exclusionary regulation of herbal medicine, which would include licensure, because licensure means that you're allowed to do something and other people can't. So if there was a magical license that meant that you were licensed and that other people could still do it, then that might be fine. But the reality is that to be a good herbalist, to be a competent, skilled herbalist, um, you don't need an academic education. And, uh, and, and so maybe you do if you're going to be working in a hospital or something, but there are, mil there are cultures all over the world where have, that have intact systems of herbalism that are you know, entirely separate from any type of evidence base. There's no pharmaceuticals. There's no medical terms. There's none of those things. Um, and that is real herbal medicine. And the idea that our, we would decide as this one small, somewhat insular group that we would license our flavor or brand of herbalism and that people with their cultural traditions of herbalism would no longer be able to practice. Um, it you know, is, is horrifying. So, you know, retaining that diversity of, of herbalism and explanatory knowledge and so on, you know, and I think that it's, it's so hard to imagine that like you could, you can be a competent, amazing practicing herbalist without ever using anything like cinnamon or ginger or lemon balm or something. You might live in the desert, desert Southwest of the United States and use your 50 or 75 desert Southwest plants to do your materia medica. So how could you sit for an exam? where you ask about all of these other things. So, you know, the bioregionalism, um, you know, the cultural aspects, it's, it's what makes herbalism so dynamic and fascinating all over the world. And yet, you know, um, and, and we could kill all that, I think, with, with some kind of regulation that says that everyone must go to one or two or three of these, uh, of these colleges. It's what, ha it's what happened to physiomedicalism at the turn of the century, wasn't right. it? They, yeah. uh, that's, that's why we lost it that time around, because uh, the physiomedicalists were, were uh, persuaded to join the medical uh, education system. Right. And uh, immediately they lost, their colleges lost their distinctiveness, and they disappeared. Right, right into the wider medical mainstream. So yeah, that is a lesson. I think what you just said, Bevan, I think you should be uh, co-opted co into organizing. We, we have something called the Herbal Alliance, which we're setting up sort of loosely linked to herbal reality here, which is a, a, a wider platform of herbal practitioners mm -hmm. 
uh, particularly in the UK and Ireland, uh, and it's 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 getting momentum going, uh, it, and it sees itself as uh, bringing together the professional associations that practice that work in these countries uh, into one place where we can have common conversations. But there was always a question about what to do with the practitioners who don't belong mm. to a professional association. And we still haven't found the best way of organizing that. And I think you just stepped up as our co-opted organizer <laughs> of the non-professional association <laughs> practitioners, because what you just said there was really inspiring, you know, that, you know, you, you, you don't have to follow a particular rule to be a good herbalist. Mm. Yeah, and that's something that I hear all the time from people. I remember talking with – I heard from somebody in South Africa who had said that they, they'd they studied herbal medicine their whole life, and uh, this was their career and so on. And they wanted to – trying to think of what it was. They wanted to apply to the American Herbalist Guild. And, you know, I was trying to figure out how that might work. And I said, do you not – I thought that South Africa had a, an herbalist organization, which they do. But they said, well, I did, they said I didn't go to that college. I, I learned in these other ways. Um, and you have to go to that college. And, um, and I remember thinking, oh, wow, you know, that's – that's wild. Like we, you know, we need to, we need to draw a bigger circle. Like there aren't, there aren't so many of us. So, you know, for me, it's just, if people feel excluded, then it's like, okay, well, how do we, how do we open this up more? Um, Because I think that, you know, it's better, the, the earth, the earth and humanity needs us and they need, they need us to support each other and stick together. And uh, as these broader communities. And I, and I think that, I think that every herbalist should identify with, you know, unless somebody's unethical or, um, but I think we should identify with all herbalists, you know, and that's one of the things that I love that. I, I spend a huge amount of time traveling and I feel such kinship with herbalists all over, um, regardless of their background or, you know, their training or their literacy or um, language or anything like that. And the sheer delight when you tell people, I'm sure you've had this experience in the world where you tell people you're an herbalist and they're just like, what? You know, you're an herbalist? <laughs> you know, they just can't believe it. <laughs> you work with medicinal plants? Like, um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's just, it's such a phenomenal connection that we, that we share throughout all cultures, all people. Um, I love that. I remember one of the things that also inspired me uh, working in uh, Maryland was that, uh, yeah, we had the people who would we would we would know would end up in the woods uh, one day. But we also had a lot of people from in uh, Baltimore, you know, people who work in uh, urban communities mm-hmm. coming from their own different traditions, and that was because you know we. we we, we also, this side of the world, tend to have that challenge as well. How do we take herbs into a, an urban or a modern setting like that, uh, particularly with uh, local communities, uh, communities like, you know, in London, we have lots of different areas where there's different traditions, ethnic traditions and so on. And we still haven't quite got that worked out. You know, uh, most of us talking in these terms in UK are white, mm. uh, just to put it simply, um, that we have a Chinese tradition, we have an Ayurvedic tradition, but, you know, they tend to be sort of coming into something that was kicked off by a Western mm. tradition. So I want to reflect now. I don't know how the um, Baltimore scene is now for herbalists, but it was really exciting at the start with. Well, you know, it's uh, as a community um, and as a country, of course, we have a huge amount of work to do in in areas around racism um, and uh, inequality in in health and health access and and herbalism and all of that. And yet uh, that is one of the biggest thing, you know, representation and, um, and racial diversity in our communities is huge. So MUIHR, uh, you know, we have a large percentage of young black students um, and, uh, and a lot of the pieces with that for me is, not making so so the program as i mentioned has a lot of emphasis emphasis on evidence um informed practice 
um, which, you know, is problematic in certain ways because that is a dominant paradigm that um, um, has its own issues. But beyond that, the cultural traditions of herbalism uh, at MUH has been a real conscious effort to expand that to be whatever culture that is that you identify in. So I'm not going to put my culture in there. I'm not going to tell you what it is. So if you're Latinx and you um, are studying, you know, the you want to identify with the traditions that came from your people or um, it could be the African diaspora because of your lineage um, was enslaved and you're looking at those pieces. So, so students come with often a mission and an interest in connecting pieces from the past and the present um, and into the future and drawing those connections. So, so for, for us, it's not about teaching that because I can't teach that. I mean, these are not my traditions um, to teach. It's about creating space and offering the training and academic skill sets so these students can go places no one's gone before, um, can get into communities and understand uh, you know, the, the, the history and the significance of things that um, is just far beyond what I'm doing. So as an individual, so it's really about like, how can I nurture and support these students to be able to have these skills to, to further our field and to do phenomenal things. And there's so many herbalists of color in the U.S. that are doing work that's just awesome. I mean, one of the people that, that I, you know, when you were talking about bringing people in, um, is a, a man named Brandon Ruiz, and he's an herbalist and farmer, urban farmer, and he loves to kind of push the boundaries of a lot of the tropical plants where they can grow and uses them often as like conversation and community pieces. So he'll grow like an urban garden that has all of these plants from like parts of Africa and the Caribbean and South America, plants that are used every day that people recognize. And he talks about having these gardens and being in them and people stopping by and, and you know, standing there and looking at a bush that's going there and, and asking, is this, you know, is this this bush from my homeland that I used every day? Like, how, how is it growing here? And why? And who are you? And um, and what is this all about? And and so the idea of, of creating these communities in these ways. Um, and then also so many communities of service. There's so many, so many herbalists that are offering service projects to support houseless individuals, um, to support people in all sorts of places where they're marginalized around receiving health care. And um and so it's, you know, there's some foot clinics out there because that's a huge thing if you're houseless, just to, you know, tending to feet and feet wellness. And um, so I, I'm always just so inspired with that. So I think that, the, you know, the urbanization of herbalism, a lot of there's a lot of urban herb schools now. And uh, uh, and I think it's I think it's beautiful. I think the the perspectives and the growing that we have in in our community, it's humbling and there's always so much to learn, you know, and, uh, and every day we learn something new. So it's, it's pretty, I learned so much from my students, you know, it, it's, it blows my mind. I remember that. <laughs> yeah. While we're talking about our old campus days and, uh, uh, it'd be nice if you could regale, share some stories that we can both remember, uh, about one of our leading figures that lived in the neighborhood, uh, uh Jim Duke and his pharmacy, uh, garden pharmacy. Um, uh, because, you know, Jim Duke may be vaguely known over here, but I think it's a good opportunity just to just to plug him and his life and his contribution and what he meant for us yeah. personally when we were setting up that program. Yeah, those are magical days, aren't they, over there at his gardens, just, you know, listening to Jim. So can you t tell us br briefly who Jim Duke was for those who don't know and what he meant for us? I mean, Jim Duke worked for, he worked for the USDA, right, as a botanist. I mean, he was a you know incredible explorer. Uh, you know, all of the places that he's gone all over the world are just so amazing. But ultimately, settling in Maryland and creating his own collection, um, his own menagerie of, of uh, herbal medicines, and 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 you know, Jim was just he was he was a scientist and he was very much a scientist you know he could rattle off any anything and bore you to death with with some of it um but he you know he was so infatuated with medicinal plants and uh 
Um, and he had such a kinship with each one of those plants in his garden. So, you know, so going on a plant walk with Jim was just, uh, you know, a, a window into kind of his mind and his heart around these plants. And, 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 and it was just full of stories and, uh, um, some of his stories, some retold stories. And of course, some of the stories came from people who visited his garden and then they became stories too. But, um, but you know, it was, it's such a special place and that, you know, that land is still um, for sale and uh, his gardens because he passed, mm -hmm. Peggy passed away recently. The gardens have been well tended so that, uh, you know, we're looking at a bunch of nonprofits or individuals who are interested in taking over those those beautiful magical gardens. But what, yeah. what are some of your favorite yeah, memories magical. of the early days? I'd love to hear. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it was such a delight to discover he lived two miles away. Uh, and then when we started up, he would turn up for class yes. as a sort of honorary student, barefoot, as he often was, uh, and sit at the back of the class with a, ba a bag of lunch that Peggy had provided for him and just mop it all up. And you were aware that this amazing character was in your class as a student. <laughs> uh, but it was really something, and I, th I think you know, from, from this end of the world, we should just make the most of this opportunity just to mark him and his contribution to what we do. Absolutely, you know, is in, and if, if visitors ever get over to the U.S., one of the best places to go um, is southeastern Ohio to the United Plant Savers Botanical Sanctuary the place that he loved dearly, where, uh, Simon, it's changed a lot since you've been there. We now have a, a large Appalachian medicinal plant center there that houses Jim's li former library, um, minus some of his random files. And uh, and that's there as well as, as extensive medicinal trails and so on. So you can go and access um, all sorts of pieces of who Jim was there. There's uh, The library is intact and... Uh, um, it's a fan fantastic place. And Jim used to come on those field trips like a kid, you know, yeah. he would collect plants. He'd collect like, you know, a plant from each plant family all day, or he'd do, you know, up until he could barely walk those trails. I remember just walking through those woods and finding just, you know, acres of panax, uh, of hydrastis, hydrangea, other of those fantastic uh, herbs that we know and love so well just carpeting the, the the forest floor there it's it's like you know disneyland for herbalists there it's uh yeah the yeah. the you know the, the medicinal plants are it's well worth a field trip if anybody does want to travel to the u.s do head to the united plant savers location in southeast southeast ohio isn't yes it? southeastern ohio yep and there's lodging now and, yeah. and internships and so it's a great place to learn about medicinal plants and really immerse yourself in their native yeah. environment. Are you still in practice yourself? Baby? I'm seeing clients from way back when uh, at this point. So the, the ones that have persisted and stayed around, but mostly I'm supporting other people that are, that are seeing clients. And as I mentioned, you know, a lot of it, I, I, I do enough to stay fresh. So I feel like, you know, things are, mm -hmm. are still happening and I'm still getting that kind of feedback and progression. But again, a lot of it comes down to making sure that all these herbalists that are studying and working so hard to do this uh, end up with viable careers because this is a good profession. This is an yeah. honorable profession. People should have a good salary. They should feel appreciated and they should feel like they're contributing to the world in a, in a positive way. Uh, and so, so that's really become a lot of my focus. And I think part of it becomes from being being, you know, at MUIH for for all of these years, for, for nearly 20 years, and just being able to look at what's worked and what hasn't um, for herbalists that are getting out there. And, uh, and, and you know, you, you, there are so many herbalists that have had such great success. And so what Indeed. are the qualities that have happened there? So spending, you know, and that's one of the things that's changed also in our curriculum and so on is... Uh, as how to do that. So that, you know, I'd say more than practice, it's the practitioners, more than herbs, it's the herbalists uh, that have captured my attention as of late because, um, you know, we, we should be able to do this. So uh, talking of the herbs now, and my impression was that you know, the the herbalists generally source their herbs locally or a small scale. There's, there are no sort of big herbal 
practitioner suppliers across the U.S. You tend to pick them up from various sources. Is that right? I think that a lot of people will do that. Um, Mountain Reserves is our is often a big national supplier for many herbalists because of their commitment right. to quality and ethics. Right. They're also massive community supporters. It's hard to find a, an herbalism community initiative that's happening in the U.S. that isn't supported by Mountain Rose Herbs. They are um, always right. willing and generous. So, um, so, but we do. We tend to use a lot of bioregional herbalism. We tend to use a lot of kitchen medicine. That's a huge passion of mine. And uh, one of the things that I feel really strongly about, I published a book in 2020 called Spice Apothecary. That has a lot to do with that around accessibility, uh, affordability, and the therapeutic use of um, of spices as medicine, but actually delivered in food in um, adequate doses and so on. So uh, you know, there's there's a but but a lot of people do tend to find from local herb farms. There's a lot of herb CSAs. I don't know if people know what I'm talking about when I say CSAs. Um, yes. so yes, yeah, so you get your herbs, whatever's coming in that month and, and so on. So we, we do like our small producers. And I think that's another one of those points of tension, like we were talking about with practice is that, uh, you know, our regulate, the regulations around herbal products, which are needed, of course, um, as they become more stringent and, uh, more consistently, uh, applied can, you know, really um, edge out the folks who are doing it more as a cottage industry. Uh, you know, and that that is a loss at times for us because um, there's some wonderful people producing some incredible small batch craft medicines uh, that, that, you know, are, are going to be phenomenal. But, um, but uh, you know, again, it's a point of tension. There's, there's, no, there's no right answer to how to deal with regulating and making things safe. Um, and then crowding people are there, out. Are there actually, are there, are there, have people actually been challenged in this way as herbalists? Definitely. Yeah. 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 Really? It, really? And it depends on where you're at. You know, if you, if you're selling things at your local farmer's market, kind of you directly to people and so on, um, you know, you're probably good for a while. If you are selling things on Etsy or online, things can start to get a little hairy uh, if you have a website and so on, and if you start making money, then it gets very difficult. So yeah, some of our, we've had some phenomenal small um, kind of craft industry herbal product companies who have become large enough to be noticed and um, the target of regulatory, um, um, you know, they, hundreds of thousands of dollars spent on, on complying. Yeah. And this is GMPs, good manufacturing practice things, and so on. Is that right? Right. right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it's 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 a it's a very interesting lesson for everybody that uh, that's getting or uh, that's always an issue. The, the external application of quality standards uh, is always an issue we have to face. Um, so yes. Uh, so that we we've got this mix of. Uh, uh, herbal sourcing uh, from the homemade through to uh, well-organized suppliers. Uh, and uh, one of the things that, you know, has always been interesting is the difference in cultures in terms of dosing and preparation and so on. Uh, is that still very mixed and multiple uh, as well, multiple traditions in in terms of delivering the herbs as well? Well, I think it's it's mixed in philosophy, but it's also about price. Um, you know, herbal tinctures in yep. the United States are incredibly expensive. So if you're to use yes. something I'm a big fan of, as I mentioned, the food pieces, but powders, you know, when you can use a powder, it can cost uh, 5% or less of what you're looking yes. at if you're using yes. it, a fancy product in, the, uh, in capsules or you're using a tincture, depending on what it is. So, of course, it's not always possible. But, uh, you know, for me, I find as a, um, as, as a person who's looking at students' formulas all the time and so on, I'm always saying, you know, if you give this as a tea to this person, not only do they get the sensory experience of herbal medicine, which I think is very important, uh, but it's also going to cost them $5 a month instead of $95 a month. And, uh, and I, I think that's a really big thing. So, um, 
So we, so that, that's, I think a piece that comes up is how much can people really afford of these herbal medicines and, and is it going to become an elitist thing? But the dosage does matter quite a bit. And, uh, you know, I wish that, I wish that I could separate the conversation around dosage from the conversation around finances, but they're very much tied, uh, together. And there are different schools of practice and philosophy around these dosages, everything from from camps of herbalists who think, you know, drop dosing is is sufficient to people who feel like, uh, you, you know, very high doses is necessary or concentrated products, of course, that are um, that move a little bit further away from herbal medicine into into other areas. So I think I think that's a really interesting piece is and I'm really interested in how we use our herbal medicines um, because I think it makes it it's a it's almost a bigger difference than what herbal medicines we use is how we're actually using them depending on which choices we're making. Absolutely. I was very struck by the the popularity of powders at our program in Maryland because it's something we'd hardly ever use over here but then the cost of our tinctures is far cheaper right. and that means that we're we're sort of got a luxury uh before we sort of wrap this one up i'm interested in what you said early on about your own path and how you took this master's program in uh, infectious diseases and i know that was at the london mm -hmm. school of hygiene and tropical mm -hmm. medicine so you have that connection with the side of the atlantic tell us a little bit about you know what what you learned in that uh, dog's leg of a journey <laughs> into infectious diseases and back out into herbs. Is there something you brought into the herbal world from that path? Well, I think, I think understanding a little bit more about human nature was an important part of the program because, you know, we weren't necessarily, what I was looking at was not necessarily broad healthcare um, regulatory aspects. It was about how to get people to seek care. And I think this is the same. I mean, I, I remember a story about uh, training the women who are the, the medicine, uh, the, the healthcare decision makers of a village, training them extensively about malaria and how to identify it, how to prevent it, how to protect their families from it, and how to get treatment when it happened and why these treatments were the best and so on. And somebody, I remember a faculty member sharing a story about how that uh, this person, their child got malaria, and they went straight to, you know, the, the, um, spiritual healer in the village and had them do a ceremony and you know and they and they asked afterwards they said well you know do you understand this is a what what malaria is yes how it works yes how the treatments work yes you know why you need to do this yes all of this was in agreement uh, but what she said was but what i wanted to fix was why it was my son that got malaria and not someone else's and you haven't addressed that right and so you know realizing all of these human pieces and this comes kind of full circle to what you said about when we were talking about those early days and not treating disease is that we're treating what we're working with is, is the human experience. I mean, we're, we're, people can come in and describe anything that's happening to them. It doesn't have to fit into um, a healthcare code. It doesn't have to fit into a defined pathology. It doesn't have to be a disease. Uh, you know, they, they can describe their illness, like the difference between an illness and a disease. And that old joke that when you go to the doctor's office, you have an illness. And when you leave, you have a disease, which is true because when you go, you're just like, this is what I experience. These this is how the world is to me. This is what's happening in my body. This is what happens to me. And they look at it and they go, oh, you have diabetes. And so all mm. of a sudden you have that. Right. And so I think that that right there, as far as you know, the infectious disease piece, really uh, reinforced that for me, medical anthropology, the idea of placing value in substances, like how we place value in pills, but we could place value in other things. Um, all of those belief models and how that factors into what we do. And I think with herbalism, it's, uh, it's, it's important as ever, you know, it's, um, 
there's there's so many things where uh, in herbalists, the distrust of any type of contemporary medicine that comes up in certain herbalists, uh, you know, during COVID especially, this has been a real prominent, prominent thing and how different that is. I mean, and how divisive that is in our community between those who believe that herbalism is, is a, is a part of a plethora of, um, of treatments and philosophies that we can adopt to feeling like this is the one and only um, way to go about it with a with a kind of a, a blind belief in it. So it's fascinating. And I think infectious disease understands that well, because we've been dealing with it for a really long time. And those practitioners know there's it's, it's about humans and what they actually do um, and how we control infection. That's such a good point. Yeah, I was reminded by uh, what you were saying by a, a good doctor friend of mine who's, who's departed who used to uh, rail against the medicalization of uh, human uh, conditions. And he was talking about uh, uh, a 80-year-old a with polypharmacy for all the usual things, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and uh, all metabolic disorders of one sort or another. And uh, all she said when you visited her was, Jack's dead and the boys are gone. And you, you realize that, you know, that was what the illness was, not the disease that had been diagnosed and treated, medicalized in that right. way. So what you just said is a really good place to to, to leave here because we, we're we agreeing that what we do in herbal medicine so much better is to look at the human who's going through this uh, health challenge rather than go around slapping diseases on them and treating that. Right, right. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I think humans are just herbalism. Herbalism, you can't take the plants and the people, you can't separate the plants and the people. You know, this is, it's, it's this relationship that's gone on for as long as we've been humans and before we were humans where, you know, we've understood plants and, and, uh, and plants to some degree have understood us, or at least we, we know that they are, they do things. Um, and I, what I, what I love is that we don't even need to know how, I mean, we've never known how, and, and we still know very little of the how we just know that that they do, you know, we don't, we don't know how, how some of these things happen, but we know that they happen. And, you know, herbalism and herbs, when we take them into our body, all sorts of things happen. And it's, uh, you know, I'll stand in awe of it for all my days, I'm sure. Bevan, that's a wonderful way to finish. So thank you so much for sharing your life with us. And uh, we'll look forward to more collaborations, I hope, between the uh, across the Atlantic. You are welcome. It's been such a pleasure. You've been listening to The Herbcast, the podcast from Herbal Reality. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If so, perhaps you'd like to leave us a rating. That would really help us to spread our message for herbal health. We hope you'll join us again for the next episode. And in the meantime, if you'd like a few more herbal insights from us, do have a look at herbalreality.com. We'll learn more from us via Instagram, where we're at herbal.reality, and we're on Twitter and Facebook too. We'll be back with another episode of The Herbcast soon. Thanks for joining. Thanks for joining.